2, we'll read together the entirety of the psalm. Psalm 2. Let's give our attention now to the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious psalm is presented to us tonight. What glory of our God and Father and of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us this night to have eyes that can see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. And revel in the glory you have manifested of yourself to us. We thank you for this passage. Would you bless it and use it tonight? For the praise and honor and worship of the Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I would venture to say that practically everyone, certainly everyone in this room, likely has one or more favorite psalms. And the reason for that is simply this, that the psalmist writes about life. Sometimes he writes about the good things that happen in life. Sometimes he writes about the difficult and the hard and the bad times. Sometimes he speaks with great joy and enthusiasm. And other times he speaks out of the sorrows that he encounters in his own life. Sometimes he calls us to lift our thoughts to the glory of God, to God and the, the majesty and his holiness. And other times he directs our attention to man in his weakness, in his times of need, and in his times of sin. Now this, easy, this evening I want to call your attention to this particular psalm, Psalm 2 which I think is one of the most extraordinary psalms in the entire Psalter, if not, in fact, 
in the whole of the Bible. Here, the psalmist gives us one of the most exalted pictures of the majesty and the power of God seated high upon his throne in heaven. But more than that, the psalmist says this high and exalted view of God impacts and affects the way we think about God and the way we think about the world around us. Everything that's happening right now in our world is affected by the truths that the psalmist gives us here in Psalm 2. Many of you will remember Psalm 1 where a sharp contrast is drawn between two kinds of persons. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. And what happens to them and by them are very, very different. There's a sharp contrast that's drawn. Well, in Psalm 2, originally some commentators think the two psalms were actually joined together. I'm not positive about that. But in Psalm 2, we also have a sharp contrast. Not between persons, but between places. In other words, what's going on in heaven and what's going on on earth. And so the psalmist highlights that contrast for us. The writer of this particular psalm is unidentified. Further, we can say that whoever he was, his words far exceed his own experience and knowledge. Brethren, this is clearly a revelation of God through the Spirit to the psalmist. The point is, history, all of history, and certainly in the psalmist's life, history has never seen a rebellion of this magnitude nor has it seen a ruler this magnificent. This is not your typical rebellion. This is not one or two nations rising up against another nation or an oppressive regime trying to squelch and crush the resistance that has been raised against its authority. And the reign of this king extends far beyond anyone that ever reigned in the nation of Israel. For that matter, in any nation in the history of the world. This king is given a universal domain. As he says in verse 8, the ends of the earth are his possessions. The whole world, indeed the whole universe, belongs to this king. So this this is not typical, and this is not part of the psalmist experience. This is given by revelation. These are the realities 
of the king of heaven and earth. Now, the psalm has four parts. I don't know if you were able to to pick up on that as we read through. Each part is comprised of three verses. And in each part, a different speaker has something to say. So in verses 1 through 3, we see and hear from the kings of the earth. In the second part, in in verses 4 through 6, we have him who sits in heaven speaking and acting. In the third part, we have the anointed one acting and speaking. And in the fourth and final section, the psalmist himself speaks. So we're going to look at these four sections. First of all, the rage of the nations. Now notice how the psalmist begins the psalm. Why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot a vain thing? Now, his question why is not asking, why, why are they doing this? What, what is their purpose to do this? His question why is one of astonishment. Why? Why would these kings of the earth attempt to do something so absurd as rebel against the living God? That is the same thought that is reflected in the second part of of verse 1. Why do the people plot a vain thing? Why would they do this? And the absurdity of the revolt is not simply because these people are so weak or they have no might or they have no, no power or effect upon the one that they are rebelling against. I can still remember, I don't know what war it was or, or when it took place, but it was one of those, those accelerated conflicts between the Israelis and, and the Palestinians. And I still can, can see the vivid picture of, of this whole row of Israeli tanks rolling into a city and, and here are these, these soldiers mounted on top of their tanks. And the Palestinians are throwing rocks at them. Because that's all they had. So they're, they're, they're trying to, to fend off or, 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 or break away from the authority that's over them by throwing rocks at tanks. That's not the picture here. These are the kings of the earth. These are rulers of the nations. These are men of power. They're men of learning. They're men of influence. And not only that, but they, they've now all joined together in this rebellion. They've taken counsel with one another and they've plotted how they're going to overthrow the authority of the king who is over them. And my friends, under any other circumstance, 
this would have struck fear in the hearts of that king whom they were rebelling against. All these rulers, all these kings of the earth joining forces together. And they are coming against the king of heaven. But that's not the picture here. Because the ruler that all these kings of the earth are gathering against is the Lord. They are gathering against Jehovah and his anointed one. And so all of these men are coming against the Lord. Now, my friends, just stop and think about this. You can perfectly understand when when the psalmist sees this, he says, why? Why would anyone do this? And you could ask yourself, why would anyone in their right mind go to war with God? With the Lord, with the creator of the ends of the earth. With one who can speak and galaxies come into being. Why would anyone fight against God? Nevertheless, these men rise up in defiance. And they are saying, we refuse To serve the living God. They are casting off all restraints. They are crying like those in the parable in Luke 19. The men that sent after the nobleman and said, We will not have this man reign over us. These men are refusing. And the psalmist is utterly dismayed. Do these people not realize that no one can resist the hand of the almighty and infinite God? You know, even Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that truth. Listen to how we, we find Nebuchadnezzar speaking in Daniel Chapter 4 and verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of the time, this is after he's lived in the, in the field for seven years like a beast. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one. Who would fight against God? It was a mystery then for the psalmist to see this, to hear this. But my friends, it's still a mystery today. 
Look around you. And what do you see? Every day of our lives, brothers and sisters, we see this same spirit of rebellion against the God of heaven. We see our society. We see it in our courts. We see it in our legislators. We see it in our president. Every time we turn around, society is throwing away with both hands every vestige of God's commandments. It's still happening. They're still saying, we will not have this man reign over us. You will not tell us what to do. We will not serve the one and only true and living God. We will not keep his day holy. We will not be true and faithful to our marriage vows. And you are not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. And so this very week, our legislature is taking up same-sex marriage. What are they saying? Let us cast their bonds away. Let us refuse. We will not serve this king. That is what we hear the kings of the nations saying every day. Well, secondly, we see the response of Jehovah in verses 4 through six. Now the psalmist uses this stark contrast now to make his point more memorable. In the first three verses, we have this scene of frantic motion and movement. We have the kings of the earth gathering together their forces and tearing off every symbol of submission to God, to the king of heaven, end of earth. Break their bonds. This, this word bonds was, was used of the yoke that held two oxen together and caused them to work side by side. And they said, no, we're going to tear off that yoke and we're going to break it in pieces. We're going we're gonna to throw off the cords that bind us to this king. And so That's the picture we see in the first three verses. In the second three, the writer directs our gaze heavenward. And there, my friends, we see something markedly different. In fact, everything taking place in heaven is calm, it's quiet. There's no agitation, there's no fear, there's no upset person or individual. God, what is he doing? He's sitting. God is just sitting on his throne. This massive uprising of all his enemies are are coming together and it doesn't even cause God to stir. He's just sitting. 
on his throne. Alexander McLaren says, God is sitting on his throne regarding undisturbed the disturbances of the earth. A.W. Pink is even more graphic. Listen to what he says. All, were all the inhabitants of heaven and earth to join forces in one unified revolt against God, it would occasion him no uneasiness and would have less effect upon his unassailable will than the waves of the Mediterranean upon the rock of Gibraltar. How many thousands of years have those waves of the Mediterranean beat upon the rock of Gibraltar? And it hasn't changed it one bit. And even if every king and all the people of every nation on earth were to unite in rebellion against God, he wouldn't so much as lift an eyebrow. It would cause him no uneasiness. But he's not only sitting, (laughs) even more striking, he laughs. He who sits in the heavens, this massive rebellion has risen up. And he sits upon his throne and looks at them and laughs. My friends, these The imagery here is staggering and solemn because it's not a laughter of happiness or amusement. It's a laughter of disdain and displeasure at the iniquity of their acts. The sense of this is spelled spelled out for us in the remaining phrase when he says he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Now, brothers and sisters, young people especially, these are telling words. God has graciously created the world in which we live. He has blessed men with untold measures of gifts and goodness. He has provided redemption for us through his son. And he continues to show mercy and withhold judgment upon this world. But don't misread God's forbearance because the day is coming when he is going to respond in wrath. Like that nobleman in Luke 19 when the people rebelled and said we will not have this man reign over us and they did not use his goods 
in a profitable way. Well, when that king comes back, what does he do? He destroys those wicked individuals. Don't misread God's withholding judgment. Listen to him. Heed his word. Go to him and seek for mercy and respond to his grace through Christ because one day he is going to rise up in wrath and he is going to distress them in his displeasure. Well, the third section brings us to the reign of the sun. A third voice is now raised, but the words that he speaks are not his own. He speaks what he has heard. He speaks what has been told to him. And so he says, I will repeat the decree of God. I will declare the decree for the Lord Jehovah has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now these words have been used in part or in total in different places. Part of it was first given by Nathan the prophet as he was describing how God was going to bless the house of David, particularly in giving all the nations to Solomon. But the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 5 applies these words clearly to Christ. And so we read in Hebrews 1 and verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in Acts 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, and he tells them these words in Acts 13 and verse 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, speaking of the promises given to the fathers, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. Paul cites Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. What Paul does, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, this is about Christ. These very words could not be claimed by any king on the face of the earth in the history of the world. Because this king is the son of Jehovah. And he is given a universal throne. The ends of the earth belong to him. And so here these words are spoken in Samuel and in Hebrews and again in Acts. And they all point to Christ and more particularly to the day of the resurrection. When God raised him up and made him to assume the throne of the Son of God. And so today... I have begotten you. 
does not indicate a beginning of his, his existence as some of the liberal theologians would have us think. This is the day in which the Son was raised from the dead and exalted and given a name above every name. Think of those words that Jesus uses after the resurrection with his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me today. I have begotten you today. I have exalted you today. All authority has been given to you. And then, of course, as we read what happens as a result of this authority being given to him in verse 8, he says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, all the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. My friends, do you realize that the last 2,000 years of history are a testimony of the fulfillment of these words? That the gospel, which started in one little Israeli town, has now spread to every nation on the planet. And where resistance has risen up and become the most fierce and persecution of Christians has reigned, the gospel has continued to spread. Which is why Tertullian could say in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because Christ has been given the nations and all opposition has been broken in pieces not by the sword of crusaders, not by the tanks and aircraft carriers of armed forces, but by that simple gospel message that we heard about this morning. By that, Christ has been given the nations. And there is not a nation on earth where that gospel has not gone. Well, let's look lastly at the final three verses and the recommendations of the psalmist. He says in verse 10, Now therefore be wise, O king. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. So the psalmist has looked at all of this. And he says, here's my counsel to you, you kings who want to rebel against God. You rulers, listen to me. Be wise, be instructed. And his counsel is twofold. It's striking. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
serve the Lord with fear, with reverence. His point is this, for them and for us, when you see the majesty and the power and the grandeur of God Almighty, it ought to humble you and bring you into a sweet submission to him, not rebellion. Be wise. Be instructed. Serve the Lord. Don't rebel against him. Serve him. Submit to him. And notice this combination of rejoice with trembling. Have you ever experienced those two things at the same time? Most of the time we think of joy as one thing and fear or trembling as something entirely different and opposite. But the psalmist says, no, these two go together. You rejoice before God, but do so with the greatest reverence. My friends, the one is not hindered by the other. It's enlivened by it. Rejoicing is enlivened when we revere God and realize who he is. And then his final recommendation is kiss the son. I think we all know what a kiss stands for, do we not? It's a sign of affection. And in some cases, a sign of great respect. I know I've told you before that on one particular night I had been a very, very bad boy and I was severely disciplined for it. And I was thinking all night long, I'm going to run away from home. But in the morning, I found myself hanging around the back door waiting for my father to go to work. And as he passed by, I reached out and grabbed him and hugged his neck and kissed him. Because in that discipline, I realized he loved me enough to discipline me. It was a strange moment, but there was great joy and yet trembling and reverence. Kiss the Son. Yield to Christ. Serve Him because you love Him. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Kiss the Son. Show your affection to Him and let that translate into service unto Him. And you know what? Though we don't deserve it, you see what it leads to. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. My friends, view here the majesty of God, the glory, the power, the magnificence of King Jesus. But don't let that cause you to fear to go near 
Seek him. Draw near to him. Submit to him. Serve him. Love him. And show your affection for him. That leads to blessing. May God use this psalm to encourage us. God's not troubled by what's going on in the world around us. He's in perfect control. I'm not saying that we do nothing, but we do look at God. And as Bernard of Clairvaux used to say, a tranquil God tranquilizes all things. And as we see God sitting in heaven, laughing at his enemies, it calms our own hearts and helps us. It leads to blessing. Well, may God bless and use his word tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this picture of your great power and might and that no one can restrain your hand. No one can say to you, what are you doing? But you do according to your will and the armies of heaven and in the inhabitants of the earth. Oh, Lord, comfort our souls tonight with these glorious truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a moment as we reflect upon these truths.